Hello, my name's Luke, and welcome to Scapegoat, the podcast where we see who gets the blame and who gets away with murder, sometimes literally. In this week's episode, we delve into four musical myths which have been widely circulated on the internet and in the pre-digital age. Some of these urban legends have no substance whatsoever, while others have a grain of truth hidden away in them. So get ready for some good vibrations as we delve into four musical myths. The Ohio Players were a musical group originating from Dayton, Ohio in the late 1950s. The band was not initially popular and went through many different lineups. However, by the start of the 1970s, the band capitalised on the newfound popularity of both funk and R&B and began to receive some recognition. So, throughout the early 70s, the band's rise was meteoric through the charts. Being in 1972, the band was barely able to break the US Top 200 album charts. Well, two years later, in 1974, their album Fire reached number one in the charts. The self-titled Song Fire from the album also became the band's first number one US single. People may know the song because it's a song from the US version of uh, the Hell's Kitchen, if you've ever seen that Gordon Ramsay TV show. So if you recognize that, that's where it's from. As you can imagine, this led to a great deal of anticipation for their next album. The Ohio players previously had relied on the use of a lot of sexualized imagery for their albums. For instance, their albums were named Skin Tight, Ecstasy, Pleasure, Pain, and all had sexualized themes on their album covers. So their next album was no exception, and it followed this trend by having a nude woman holding an overflowing jar of honey and above her head dripping a ladle with honey into her mouth. And you'd guess what they called this album? Of course, Honey. This album became very popular, rising up to number two on the album chart, but a real buzz started to go around the band with the second single released from the album, Love Roller Coaster. The single was both widely popular inside the United States and internationally, reaching number one in the United States, number two in Canada, and number five in France. So you angsty Gen Apes types listening, you might know this song as being performed by the Red Hot Chili Peppers on the Beavis and Butthead soundtrack, but that was just a cover version. The Ohio players had the original. Now there's been a persistent urban legend around a high-pitched scream heard during an instrumental portion of the song. Now I'm going to play this for you now. There have been many different claims about the origin of this screaming sound, but many of these rumours began to emerge after the American Top 40 Hits radio program reported on the strange noise. So the DJ was a guy called Casey Kafem. He actually played the voice of Shaggy and Scooby-Doo, if you ever seen that. So he's like, yikes, Scooby. But uh, yeah, he did the album charts and he did the pop charts. And he one day was listening, he heard this weird scream and he commented on it. And from that, a lot of people began to come up with different theories to what the sound really was. Now, the most widespread rumour was the scream had actually come from the nude model from the album cover, Honey. So, the rumour goes that this model, a woman called Esther Cordett, was badly burned during the photo shoot because 
they heated the honey to give it a more golden glow to like look better on the album and when the model actually tried to pour it into her mouth which is the picture on the cover it badly disfigured her it like ripped off some skin and then after being in hospital for a couple of weeks she turned up to the band's recording studio during a recording session and she went straight up to the control room to confront the band's manager and threatened to sue the group saying here you took this photo of me i'm suing you give me all the money so in response to this the manager thought hmm, shall i give her the money no and he stabbed her to death and when she was being stabbed she screamed and this is where the scream came from another version of this story is the same model uh esther Cordet, was badly burnt not by heated honey but by fiberglass which was used in the shoot and got stabbed in the same way yet another version of this story claimed that the woman wasn't that she has to court it, but rather a cleaning lady who came across like a drugs bust or an ex-girlfriend of like a band member turning up to the studio and getting murdered the same way. Okay, the second main version of the story is somehow when they were recording the album, a rabbit got into the recording studio and began to chew on live wires when they were playing the song and it got an electric shock and died and the rabbit's scream was picked up and this is this shrieking sound. A third version is the Ohio players got a recording of a girl falling to her death from the Blue Streak roller coaster at Cedar Point Amusement Park and they decided to use it in the song they had just written or wrote the song in mind of using this clip. So because of the hype around these many different stories people began to feel uncomfortable about the band and they actually never had a top 10 record again and after about another year after in, starting in 1976 the band would never break the top 40 again even though they went up through the 90s i think they were in the 2010s as well so what's the truth behind this story well first we can dispel the esther cordett theory that she was murdered because she's still alive today she actually has her own wikipedia page because she was a uh, playboy Miss March from 1974. She's actually relatively popular and well-known. If she had actually died, it probably would have been reported. And for instance, there's been different news articles which have just like interviewed her and she's like, no, no, didn't die. It's a bit like, you know, the James Bond movie Goldfinger that there was a rumor going around that there was that girl on the bed painted in gold and they and a lot of people said oh the real actress died no you can look up on like imdb who it was and find out still alive or at least still alive a couple of years ago and frankly the idea of you know her getting murdered going into the booth and getting murdered is a little bit ridiculous because if you're going in and having a heated argument where you're threatening to sue a person and the only things picked up on the recording is your scream is a little bit ridiculous understand it's high pitched, but I don't think that's how it works. Also, if that had happened, the band probably would have realized it and they would have stopped playing or they would have chosen a different take. Also, music studios, typically the ones used by bands as part of a major record label, especially for bands who had had a number one album and single the year before, are soundproofed, making the idea that a woman or a rabbit from outside the studio chewing on like lines or a woman getting stabbed and you'd hear this in the recording booth nearly impossible i would say it's almost completely impossible i'm not a sound engineer 
I know one of the guys who listens to uh, this podcast does some sound engineering, so uh, hi Gav. But uh, no, I, I just can't I just can't see that. I really can't see those two possibilities working. Finally, for the likelihood that the band would make a recording of a girl falling from a roller coaster and putting it into a song, I couldn't actually learn that if they had recorded it themselves or they'd been given the recording in this urban legend. I think it must have been given because I can't imagine a band just hanging out by a roller coaster being like here. Let's let's just let's wait for a girl to fall or someone to scream and we can add it to a song. Like maybe they were given this, but you know, I, I really can't see that being a reasonable explanation. I mean it's the most reasonable explanation, but still it's would be an extremely warped thing to do and if anyone caught you doing it, it would be the end of your career. So it's risky. It's the most feasible that someone just said, Oh, here's a recording, stick it in your song, but I don't know why. It would be like if someone just turned to me now and said, Here, look. Here's a sound of a horse running around. Put it into your podcast. I'd probably say, why would I do that? Like, do you really want to hear a sound of a horse running around? Like, no. So I'm probably not going to put it in. So the band's explanation for what the sound was, was actually one of the band's member, Billy Beck, was doing an inhaling type scream, an imitation of our, of our high-pitched artists at the time. So it was a kind of trend in funk and R&B, for people to go like really high at the time. It's the same technique that, you know, Mariah Carey, when she goes high, it's like you're taking an intake and then you're going, <gasps> you know, nobody really wants to hear me do that. But yeah, it's something like that. So the band thought nothing of it when they were recording. They just thought, oh, this is funky. We're just jamming. This guy's done this weird scream. <laughs> sure, whatever. But when the rep scream was reported on America's Top 40, the band decided hey, this is starting to get us more publicity. So they all swore to take a vow of silence because that way they knew they would sell more records. And to me, this is the most likely thing that I can't see, you know, a band and their managers, like maybe I can see them stabbing people, but this would sound far more likely. This isn't like Death Row Records in 1995. This is the Ohio Players in 1974. I, I can't see it, but... I might be wrong. Tell me what you think of that, and we're gonna move on to the next one. There have been a lot of different rumors of artists who die and are replaced by secret doppelgangers. One of the most famous one of these rumors is the death of Paul McCartney in 1966 the so-called Paul is dead urban legend so a lot of people say he was out driving in 1966 and he got a car crash and he got decapitated and the record company were like oh no we've lost one of the Beatles one of the biggest recording artists of all time what will we do so they got a Canadian guy called Billy Shears who replaced him the whole conspiracy goes like and they replaced him and and what happened to the original Paul oh no he died and frankly, I'm not going to talk about this because it's been talked about on a load of different podcasts who go really into detail with this. Those conspiracy guys thinking sideways. I think last podcast on the left might have done it. And I also think the stuff that they don't want you to know has also covered it. So if you like any of those podcasts, just check their back catalogue. They've probably done this. This seems to be one of those things that all podcasts eventually end up doing. So I'm not going to do that today. I'm going to try and take a fresh take. And also, just one last thing, I 
really just prefer the Paul McCartney from after 1966. I, you know, if he, they say he died in early 1966, and what I personally find is Sgt. Pepper came out late 1966. That's when a lot of the Beatles stuff I thought became really good. Not the stuff before it wasn't good, but I thought it really became good. Then I like Paul McCartney pretty much between Sgt. Pepper and Live and Let Die. So if there was a replacement, I prefer him to the original. I think it was a good thing. Thumbs up to the record company for doing that. Great job, fellows. I really appreciate it. But we're going to talk about someone else who had a musical doppelganger. We're going to talk about someone with a more contemporary version for the internet era. Now to understand this, you have to understand the music scene of 2002 was a bit of an odd place. Because previous to this, there had been like a huge wave of new metal music coming out with people liking Le Biscuit, Korn, Disturbed, Papa Roach. And while this really had like its good turn and people really loved like, Yo, this time I'm gonna let it all come out! And all this sort of stuff. They began to want to soften the music a bit and began to go towards a more pop-punk, Blink-182, Good Charlotte, Busted thing. Now, I'm not really going to say that I don't like new metal. I don't really anymore, but at the time, I really liked it, so I can't really be slagging. Now, at the other end of the spectrum, you had a lot of, like, late 90s bubblegum pop music from stars like Britney Spears and Christina Aguilera. And they were actually trying to harden their image, trying to be like, No, I'm not such an innocent girl. I'm really sexy. Because like Christina did Dirty and Britney did Slave for You. So into this gap stepped Canadian singer Avril Lavigne. And she released her album Let Go in early 2002. Now she had this whole appeal thing that she claimed that she wasn't a girly girl. So she wasn't like a Christina or a Britney. She marketed herself as kind of like, I don't have blonde hair. I don't wear revealing clothes. I've got self-respect unlike those girls. And she was also trying to go for the kind of like, pop punk yeah i'm a real punk i'm a rocker i play a guitar look at me i wear a tie halfway down my shirt i'm like badass and this had a huge appeal that she went like for instance six times platinum in the uk seven times platinum in the usa and australia eight times platinum in ireland like eight times platinum in ireland is pretty crazy i think she sold almost two hundred thousand records maybe slightly less than that but if you take it's something like 1 in 15 people own this album. It's pretty crazy numbers. And notably for this story, she was also widely successful in South America. Now, Avril's success began to wane after her first album. So her second album and her third album, they still got number one on the album charts, but they weren't as good selling. For instance, her second album sold about half as much. Her third sold about a quarter as much as Let Go. So it wasn't like eight times platinum, it was beginning to be like, here's a gold record, here's a platinum record, well done, you sold 10,000. So, you know, still a big star, but not as popular as was before. So in between this, Avril decided, okay, I'm going to take a break between my third and fourth album. So she took about five years off to record it. Rumors began to arrive from a Brazilian blogspot article claiming that Avril had actually hung herself after the death of her grandfather in 2003 at the height of her popularity so there had been a bit of a like a lot of album sales for avril but according to this she hung herself so a recording company just like paul mccartney decided that they would replace her with the actress melissa vandela so this blog was initially translated into english and popularized amongst the english-speaking world 
and the rumour quickly spread. So at one point it was being spread about 50,000 times different stories were being shared of this on Facebook. And a lot of the evidence is used for the idea that Avril was, when she was replaced, that there was a sudden shift in style. So the first album, no blonde hair, always kind of wore trousers, always was kind of like, you know, yo, I've got a bit of an attitude, I'm a bad girl. Well, the second album, she still had a bit of an attitude, but she had dyed her hair blonde, she started wearing short skirts. Something that she previously had said in interviews, you know, that's not me, that's something I would never do. During this time period, Avril's band, who she had toured with for, like, before she was famous, they were, to put the, the name of the album, Let Go. They all just disappeared. They had appeared in all her music videos up to that point. They had done all her live shows. But set, started the second album, it was just Avril on her own. Yo, it's me, Avril. We don't care about those four people anymore. I'm the music myself. So the blog also shows the difference between Avril's pictures pre-2003 and after, showing physical differences, for instance, around her nose, around her mouth. In some, she's got, like, you know, bruises on her shoulder or pimples on her shoulder, things that could change. And it compares her signature before and after, which have slightly changed. So the A in Avril has a hook slightly different than one. Honestly, looking at them, they look exactly the same, but this is highlighting this, circling it, being like, oh, look at this. This is clearly imitation. This person would never do this. The blog also claimed that the title of her second album, Under My Skin, was a reference to the fact that Valandella is under Avril's skin, pretending to be her. Finally, it claims the original Avril's death is referenced in two songs on her second album, the first being From My Happy Ending, which lyrics go, don't leave me hanging in a city so dead, held up so high on unbreakable fret. So the theory is, Avril hung herself in 2003, so don't leave me hanging on unbreakable fret, city so dead. She clearly hung herself. It's like the person is admitting, look at this, it's absolutely crazy. And the second is from the song Slipped Away, which lyrics go, the day you slipped away was the day I found it won't be the same. It wasn't fake you passed by. Now you are gone, now you are gone. There you go, there you go. Somewhere I can't bring you back. And people are like, look, it's talking about slipped away. The person won't be the same. It's talking about fakes that you can't bring back. It's clearly admitting that she had killed herself and replaced. So if you can tell from my uh, tone, this is stone cold evidence that it definitely happens. So. Hand on heart, it's definitely happened. There's no way, no way that an artist who became popular when she was 17 years old would ever do anything as drastic as change her sense of style, continue to physically develop, or write angsty lyrics with death metaphors. Or if you remember music from about 2002 to 2005, these were literally everywhere. Just listen to about free 2003 songs on youtube and you'll hear what i mean it's like i feel so mad i feel so angry i don't want you to love me anymore and i want to kill myself or you know it's not as direct as that but you kind of get what i mean if you listen to music from back then there's a lot of angst let's put it that way now a reason that many people put forward for this being rubbish the reason that she got rid of her band was she had actually initially been dating, I think it was the bassist from her band. And once they stopped dating, she decided, like, look, we've broken up. 
I don't want to hang out with this guy. I'm famous enough I can hire studio musicians. You guys go away. I'm the star. And anyway, I want, I want the focus to all be on me. Avril, I'm the one making the money. I'm the one on the posters. You guys, you go away. You make your own studio band somewhere. I'm famous. What's more interesting really to me, because I truly don't believe she's dead, is how this news spread. How a small Brazilian blogspot article got worldwide attention. And the blog initially was quite popular in Brazil, spread around, but it was spread around ironically. While a lot of the people were like, diehard, Avril is dead, the majority of people just looked at this as like, <laughs> look at this buddy, look at this crazy person, look at saying this person's dead. So this became like a running joke, and there was this uh, BuzzFeed reporter called Ryan who visited Brazil, and like a lot of the BuzzFeed Brazil people were like, <laughs> look at this meme, buddy. Really funny, look, Avril's dead. What <laughs> crazy could people be? And this guy was like, oh, this meme is hilarious. So he began to quote it on like the blog spot on his Twitter, began to share images, but giving no context for English-speaking people that this was widely a joke. He was just like, I'm doing this deadpan, this is my comedy style, let's run with this. And the posts were widely retweeted. Again, getting sometimes 50,000 like retweets in a day. And other publications began to post about this urban legend, including Bosumo and Gawker. And you know, a lot of people were looking at this being like, wow, this is crazy. Some people are saying Avril's dead. What's the real story behind this? And the guy was like, oh, maybe I shouldn't try and be deadpan and put out something which could be taken seriously. That's clearly a joke because people can be stupid and the internet's a terrible place for irony when you can't hear somebody's voice. So trying to be funny and spreading the rumor, widely debunked in the Portuguese speaking world, started a real life, this might have happened, rumor in the English speaking world. So the main point of this is give context. If you want to see the differences, it is uh, Avril La Muerta at blogspot so just dot blogspot look that up if you want to very easy to find but it's not really that convincing it's the same as the paula's dead thing that like look at this photo her eyes are slightly different in this i'm like 17 year old girl body develops different camera angles different things happen don't really think she's dead but it is an interesting rumor just purely by the way this sort of information can spread and people's opinion on this sort of thing can just quickly become, wow, I read it on the internet, must be true. Bands performing live often have a writer or a list of demands that they want for performing. So normally these start off with a lot of technical things that they want to be done to the stage, to make their band's spectacle easier to come off with. So it would be like, I want a girder here, or I want stage lights there, or I want like plugs, outlets here, here, and here to kind of like plug in all this sort of stuff. But a writer also includes personal demands of a band and stage crew with things such as food and accommodation and what they want the rooms backstage to look like. So while most groups demands can be quite simple. Others can be a little bit more quirky. For instance, Weird Al Yankovic for years demanded a new Hawaiian shirt every time he played a concert so he could build a collection without paying and now I think he's got like 700 Hawaiian shirts. 
and I believe it's Taylor Hawkins from the Foo Fighters has asked to get a fridge magnet every time he performs in a city just with the like name of the town or city there or something local so it's like oh I've got my Dublin one I've got my Denmark one I've got this I've got that so you know it's just quirky things some people like and they're easy to provide but other people can move away from these more understandable things towards more outrageous diva-ish behaviors demanding crazy things in their riders for instance Kanye West demands the man who drives him to the arena must wear a 100% cotton suit with no man-made fibers that when he gets sweaty on stage and he lifts a towel from backstage they must be made by Versace and uh, backstage he wants two slushy machines which produce uh, Grey Goose and Lemonade slushies and Hennessy and Coca-Cola slushies so yeah that's pretty ballin but it's also pretty ridiculous to expect that also Madonna demands in her writer that the venue moves her own home furniture to the backstage so they get it from McDonald's home and they move it for every arena that she performs in so to make her feel like home so you can imagine Hawaiian shirt you know the venue's like ha 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 we'll, we'll get you a really nice Hawaiian shirt but like moving furniture from England or America to Argentina that's pretty crazy however one of the most infamous demands in a writer came from the 1980s rock legends Van Halen who asked for a bowl of M&Ms with the warning note warning absolutely no brown ones and allegedly they have threatened to cancel shows if the writer was not respected in all its aspects so many out there will question what does Van Halen have against brown M&Ms generally all M&Ms taste the same now, I know I'm gonna get about five emails from dudes being like no the red ones taste slightly different and the orange ones taste like this I could leave the brown M&Ms but really they don't so most people are like Van Halen must be very picky and diva-ish to demand the staff filter these treats before they have them like what's so bad with brown M&Ms but the actual reasons why they have demanded this have been later explained by Dave Lee Roth in his autobiography Dave Lee Roth was the singer for Van Halen he said the reason why they demanded brown M&Ms was they were one of the first bands to do large stage shows on an international level using three times more equipment than the average band so due to this they were turning up to arenas and they would often find that the arenas hadn't read their writers so a lot of their demands weren't properly reached and this would cause a lot of problems for instance their stage set would be too heavy and would cause the floor to sink under the weight or the stage girders would collapse and that could be very dangerous to any of the techies who are like working the lights or even simple things like the doors not being big enough to bring in some of the stage props that they wanted so they were like come on why won't you just like read this telephone book sized material that we've given you you should know what we want so Van Halen devised the brown M&Ms as a test to see if their thick rider had been properly read through so if the members of Van Halen walked into the VIP room and they saw brown M&Ms in the bowl they would just simply look and say okay these people clearly haven't read the rider properly and that meant that they would have to do a line check on every aspect of the production as it would indicate the venue had not done their job properly 
something could be dangerous it could put someone's life at danger so you just need to check everything check all the electricity is right check all the girders are stable just make sure this could be really dangerous and that's what the brown m&ms were there for just to check so if there was no brown m&ms meant the production could be more confident it would mean that there was less chance of a technical problem so they could be more assured that they were dealing with professionals so this culminated on one occasion where at a university dave lee roth found a ball full of brown m&ms and just he was just like oh woe is me in his autobiography he describes himself as being like shakespeare and hey, where is me and he says like i've got a skull in my hand i think that's metaphorical so he just got really annoyed and he started like kicking the place apart he like kicked the stage door and broke it he destroyed the buffet offered to him he caused like thousands of dollars worth of damage not tens of thousands just you know a couple thousand this is 1980s how much damage can he really do backstage but however he decided look we'll continue with the show we don't want to let these fans down but due to a lack of preparations in the arena the arena had put down a new kind of like spongy surface which would have been good for like basketball games or indoor sports when van halen put the stage up and they put on all the equipment and performed the show when they lifted it it the floor had actually sank in different places meaning that you couldn't do sports on it and it caused eighty thousand dollars worth of damage and they had to completely replace the floor the whole thing was shenanigans and what lee roth says the worst part of was that because he had done a little bit of damage backstage the press reported that uh Dave Lee Roth had caused $85,000 worth of damage backstage. They had caused $85,000 worth of damage, but most of that was the university's fault. But the myth of the brown M&Ms have stuck since. The White Stripes were a two-piece band made of aspiring musicians Jack and Meg White. Starting off in Detroit, they played small venues around the city and began to get a large following. They had a distinct image, which was very fashionable, where they'd only ever use free colours, red, black and white, throughout any of their productions, or would only wear these colours on stage. They also had a motif of using the number three in a lot of their music, and with this presentation style, they really came across as an artsy brother and sister duo who were inseparable and even refused to do separate interviews. Their style was a sort of like lo-fi, not really having that much bass, with a lot of white sound and distortion, which was hugely distinctive. And with Jack's also distinctive voice, it became immediately recognisable. After two critically received but not really well-selling albums, Jack and Meg's third record, White Blood Cells, with hit singles Hotel Yorba, Fell in Love of a Girl, and Dead Leaves in the Dirty Ground, started to create a great deal of hype around the band, making many hipsters have White Stripes as their favourite group. Though, outside of Norway and Ireland, the album failed to get into the top 40. But it was with their fourth album, Elephant, which was a massive critical success, getting number one in Ireland, Sweden, Norway and the UK, we're getting in the top six in Australia, Canada, France, Belgium, New Zealand, and the United States. However, with the increased success, there was a great deal of scrutiny around the band, with journalists beginning to look into their pasts. A Detroit newspaper 
quickly discovered a wedding certificate between Meg White and a man called John Gillis. Putting two and two together, the paper stated the band were husband and wife, not brother and sister. Although quickly after this, they discovered a divorce certificate from March 2000, making them believe that they were actually a divorced couple. They stated that Jack had clearly must have taken his wife's name when they got married. So Jack White was legally his name as well as his stage name, but they weren't brother and sister. They were man and wife who had been divorced. When asked to address this, Jack and Meg avoided the question and continued publicly to refer to themselves as brother and sister throughout their time as a band. So what's the real story here? Were Jack and Meg brothers and sisters? Were they brothers and sisters who married? What's this crazy story? Well, Jack later revealed the fact that himself and Meg had been spouses, and this was an open secret to all people who knew them. However, he believed that he had, if he had presented himself and Meg as husband and wife, or even as boyfriend and girlfriend, people would tend to focus more on their relationship than they would if they were brothers and sisters. Because if they would think, okay, brothers and sisters, that's cool, and they would focus on the music. While if they were a divorced couple, he thought, oh, they'll be focused on the sexual tension thing. Nah, nah, that's not what I want. I want people to listen to my music. So the White Stripes continued to perform as a duo, with two more successful albums until 2011, when Jack and Meg went their separate ways, with it initially being claimed Meg quit due to having stage fright and not being comfortable when playing live, although Jack would later claim that they split due to personality differences with Meg's lack of enthusiasm constantly bringing him down. He would say, I'd go into the studio and be like, Meg, I came up with a new riff, and she's like, cool, bro. <laughs> like, would be really strange. Honestly, this is one of those ones, this is one of these stories I really remember from my childhood because a lot of people were like, what is the story with those two? And I think if they had actually just said we're divorced husband and wife, it would have probably been a smaller story. But, you know, the fact that they had this weird relationship, actually, it was one of those gimmicks that you were like, what is the deal with these guys who are just black, red and white and could be brothers and sisters and they don't know what a bassist is they just have a guitar and the drums but hey the music was good i really liked it and songs like black math dead leaves in the dirty ground anything up to like get behind me satan all good music so i enjoyed it but yeah husband and wife not brother and sister so thanks very much for listening guys we're just gonna run past the stories one more time and say what i've learned from them the first story of the ohio players i think i've learned that uh if there's controversy, you should probably keep your mouth closed because you'll make a lot more money that way. I mean, it did taint the band and it did hurt their later careers, but, you know, there was a whole kind of funk thing from about 1971 to about 1976. Maybe it wasn't exactly the rumour that killed them, but a lot of people have said, like, you know, because it makes a more dramatic story, and that is how, that, so that's really what killed their career, this, this rumour. Another thing that I've learned is that if you're trying to be ironic on the internet or you're trying to have a really dry sense of humor, it's always better to do this spoken rather than written because I'm sure that BuzzFeed reporter was like, I'm being so witty and all oh, my Brazilian friends will love me for doing this. But, you know, I'm pretty sure if you're Avril Lavigne and you're seeing your name on trending on Twitter and you're like, oh, what's up? Oh, people are saying I'm dead. This is crazy. Like, you know, he should have said this is a crazy thing going around in Brazil. It's not true, but at the end of the day i think avril could handle it and 
probably helped her album sales, which were sliding from the second and third album. Actually, the fourth didn't do so well either. I remember reading that. I think it only got gold in Ireland. I mean, eight times platinum to gold. That's pretty crazy. Third story. Read what's put in front of you. The bands just want you to read the writers. Some of that's crazy. Like, you don't need all white rooms like Mariah Carey or Beyonce or one of these people demands. But if they've got technical demands for a reason, do the technical demands or people will get hurt. You know, not good. Finally, White Stripes. Again, it shows sometimes just keep your mouth shut during controversy and it will probably do you well. I think the White Stripes gained from people thinking they might be brother and sister and then thinking, oh God, what's this weird relationship? Just gained infamy, gained record sales, helped Jack White's career. Maybe not so much Meg Wife, but probably helped her bank balance. Okay, well, thanks very much, guys. Thanks for listening. Uh, this has been Scapegoat, and uh, I'll talk to you soon. Okay, guys, bye bye.